All right, my good folks at RBC Nashville. I love you even though I am not there. I am likely driving back from Indiana, but I did not want to miss one of these Sunday schools because uh, we've already missed two in a row. It will have been three weeks, um, if if I'm doing the math right, since we last discussed the nature of knowledge and uh, wanted to circle back to that. But before that, uh, let me pray for us. God, um, again, we are thankful to study these truths, uh, to challenge ourselves, uh, not just as some kind of academic exercise, but to help renew our minds, create humility as we consider difficult things. And, um, and ultimately, that this would be for the edification of the body and for building up. So we pray that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a first for me. I have to confess, I am, uh oh, wait. Can you see my PowerPoint slides? Hold on, I apologize here. So this was a first. What happened here? There we go. Okay. Uh, I hope you're able to see that. I think you're able to see that. Okay. So this is this is going to be a little bit interesting. I'm trying to advance my slides while recording the video, while looking at my notes. Um, so this may be a little bit awkward, but that's okay. Okay. So if you recall, when we left off last time, we were talking about the nature of knowledge. We initially started by saying that knowledge is justified true belief. This was the tripartite analysis that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years until a man named Edmund Gettier published a tiny little essay um, called Is Justified True Belief Knowledge, where he gave these counterexamples that showed that you could have justified true belief, but still pretty clearly not have knowledge. And so the door swung back open for people in the field of of a study of knowledge, that is to say epistemology, to try to really figure out what that was. And so he went through a couple of uh, efforts and a couple of strategies for trying to rebuild uh, or modify the tripartite analysis. For the sake of time, regrettably, I'm having to skip over quite a few of those. I'm just going to give one final example. Uh, and then maybe in the future, if there is a breakout elective class uh, for, for super nerds like me who want to uh, dive into this stuff, we can, we can do that. Um, but one last attempt at, at trying to reformulate an understanding of knowledge, which actually pushes away the whole justified true belief altogether. Let me see if I can advance this here. I think I've got it on my slide. Is virtue epistemology, which is a relative newcomer to the game, but has a lot to commend it. Uh, and, and it's not totally new, uh, but but uh, it is newer. And Ernest Sosa probably is the, is the largest advocate. Let me give you what virtue epistemology is. Virtue epistemology at least insofar as it's trying to discuss uh, and analyze knowledge, um, suggests that what knowledge is, is true belief that comes about as a result of some kind of exercise of intellectual, uh, perhaps moral, psychological uh, virtue. Uh, the, the example that Ernest Sosa gives over and over is with an archer. And uh, let me see, do I have this one in the notes? Let's click. Yes. So what, what, what Sosa asks us to imagine is an archer and uh, someone who's a very poor archer and who shoots way, you know, their aim is very poor. They're not even aiming towards the target. And yet uh, the wind happens to blow 
uh, when they shoot their arrow and it hits the bullseye. He says this person is accurate. Accuracy means hitting the bullseye, hitting the target. But what he says is that this this is not adroit. And I don't I, I know, I know. I'm not sure why he had to pick these words because philosophers like to coin their own words in hopes to make it big or something. I don't know. Of their own categories. Of course, he didn't make up the word. But he says it's not adroit, meaning it's not the result of that person's skill. They got lucky, the wind blew. Well, then he asks us to consider someone who's skillful, a skillful archer who shoots and is close to the bullseye. Uh, but but doesn't hit the bullseye. So Sosa says, listen, you can be skilled or adroit and not accurate, and you can be accurate, but not adroit, okay? It can hit the bullseye, but because of the wind, and you could be very skillful, but happen to not hit the bullseye. He says, when you combine both of these things together, you get something called aptness, aptness. It is accurate, adroit belief, and that is what Sosa says knowledge is, and he's going to make some caveats about safety. If you remember the fake barn counting, you might think, well, that doesn't really do anything to get out of some of those counterexamples. If you don't remember what that is, I'm sorry, I can't rehearse it now. But he says something like, um, you need to ex exercise some kind of cognitive, some kind of virtue of reasoning, of belief acquisition. Maybe it's trust in an eyewitness testimony. Maybe it's uh, perceptual awareness. Maybe it's memory some kind of reasoning. And if you have true belief that's a result of an exercise of some kind of cognitive skill, that's really at the end of the day, what we mean by knowledge. Whether or not that covers the watershed, I will leave up to you all while we mention uh, one final, um, well, it's not, and it, let's call it one final attempt to get at knowledge. And that is contextualism. Contextualists say, listen here, on these, all these thought experiments, you got us. Okay. You got us. Great points. Um, it may be that when we say knowledge, what we mean by knowledge really changes according to context and according to kind of the rules of any one particular discussion. Uh, you might say that someone uh, knows, someone really knows, someone is certain about something. And, and what and the rules might change for, say, how much justification you have based on what context you're in. And so what these philosophers are quick to say is something like it's, it's, it's not clear that there is just one thing that we call knowledge. And all of these thought experiments and efforts seem to clarify that. That's what they say. So they might say something like, let's take Sosa's Archer analogy and say, yes, knowledge is apt belief. It's a belief that's accurate and adroit, but you still have to answer a safety condition to get around the fake barn county examples. Um, it has to be safe belief. Um, even if, again, in the fake barn county example, if I'm driving by a barn, it happens to be the one real barn and all the rest are fake, I still might have a, an accurate and adroit belief because I'm using my, per, my cognitive faculties as perception. I accurately discern there's a red barn. I got lucky though. Um, it was a very unsafe belief forming environment. Contextualists might say, listen, how safe a belief has to be is just relative to context. Depends what we're talking about. It depends where the knowledge claim is. Are we talking about God? Are we talking about your tax return? Are we talking about your 
Um, you know where someone grew up. Are we talking about and, and so on and so forth? And so this is this move really says it may be that that there are multiple analysis of knowledge and multiple kind of tiered or layered understandings of what that is relative to whatever context we're in, and maybe the quest for one overarching understanding of knowledge is misguided. That's called contextualism, okay? So I'm just going to leave it there. There is so much more could be said. I kind of feel like I'm cheating everybody, but um, some people are relieved to just move on, and other people would like to know more, and um, I, I can't make um, anyone happy here. Okay, but we are we are going to move on out of knowledge and into justification. Now, it's critical you remember that justification here. We're not talking about the theological justification, being declared righteous before God or anything like that. We're talking about uh, the 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 um, that thing in, in in virtue of which knowledge is not just lucky. Okay. Uh, just why I'm justified in believing something, why I have reason to believe something, warrant to believe something. So let's talk a little bit about the, the structure of justification. And you can get at that by uh, an example that I give you of my own son, where I'll, I'll make some knowledge claim. I'll say something about the world, about anything, really. And he'll say, uh, how do you know that? And I'll give him, you know, an answer. And he'll say, well, how do you know that? And then Will will say, well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? 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 On and on and on and on. And uh, anyone who has small children has probably had this mind-numbing kind of conversation, but is actually more profound than many of us realize. It's called the problem of epistemic regress in philosophy, because you do have to answer the question, where do you stop? Where do you stop in your how do you know this? Okay. Now, there are two primary schools um, that are kind of on polar, I, I would say they define themselves at least classically on two totally different sides of the how do you know. Let me tell you what they are. The first is called foundationalism. Foundationalism says, listen, I believe this because I believe this because I believe this because I believe this. And where things bottom out isn't another belief. Uh, it is direct experience. It is something that I know directly, but not because of another belief. For example, I believe that I'm staring into a camera right now. I think it's also very awkward. I know those things to be true. I don't know those things to be true because I believe other things. I just know them to be true because of direct awareness of those things. That doesn't mean I couldn't spin up some kind of story for you about why that belief was rational based on other beliefs. Well, I believe my cognitive faculties are reliable and I believe the lighting in the room is good. I could do that, but that's not why I believe it. I believe it instantly and immediately, and it's justified by my direct experience. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what, what kinds of direct justification um, we can have. But that's the foundationalist answer. Belief, 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 direct experience. That's where it all bottoms out, okay? Um, and, and what this has been called, a belief that is justified, but not on the basis of other beliefs, is, been, is called a properly basic belief. So a non-basic belief would be a belief that's justified on the basis of other beliefs. Um, a basic belief would be a belief that is not justified on the basis of other beliefs, and therefore, in the absence of other considerations, probably isn't reasonable to believe. But then you have properly a basic beliefs, which are beliefs not believed on the basis of other beliefs, 
Um, but nevertheless, they are justified. Um, they are justified by a direct experience. Perhaps most famously, Alvin Plantinga has developed this. You hear his name in epistemology a lot because he's an absolutely brilliant um, Christian philosopher. Now, he gives a now very famous example that I want to give you. And he uses this in the context um, of, well, he, he uses it in the context of suggesting why one might reasonably believe in God by experiencing God through something perhaps like Calvin's census divinitatis, even though he the, the sense of the divine, even though he understands that a little bit differently, almost like a, a spiritual faculty or something. But he's trying to say, why do I need an argument to rationally believe in God? And during the time he wrote this, this was absolutely revolutionary because of just the what was going on in philosophy at the time. But he said he was one of the first people to say, I don't need an argument at all. And here's exactly how he are. Here's one of the, the seminal moves that he makes. He says, imagine uh, that I am... Uh, uh, I, I want to I, I, I want to approach you to get you to to write a, a a really glowing letter of recommendation for me to become part of um, this society or this foundation, receive something about an endowment, whatever the case may be, uh, even though I am in fact not qualified at all. And um, suppose, suppose you, you know you react indignantly and say, "I would never do something like that." And you're going to write the dean uh, and say that you know this person, I can't believe they just asked me to write this letter to uh, you know get them in, and uh, this is just absolutely terrible. And so they write this letter, uh, and, and then suppose that that letter goes missing. Suppose that that letter goes missing. And they believe that you are the culprit because you're trying to cover your tracks to avoid deep uh, academic embarrassment. Okay. Um, and, and, and let's dress up his original analogy. Let's say there, there's video evidence of someone who looks like you. And let's say there's fingerprints and all the rest. All the external evidence suggests it was you, except the fact that you were actually walking in the woods. You were taking a walk in the mountains, in the woods. Uh, when it was stolen at the exact for the couple of hours that you were stolen. Now, no one knew that you don't have an alibi. Uh, but in fact, you were in the woods and you know you were in the woods because you were the one walking around. Now, Plantinga asks us to imagine only a great fool would abandon the belief that they uh, uh, were walking in the woods and that they did not, in fact, steal the letter just because all of the external evidence is against them and they can't even provide any reasons. Think about the position of that person. They would only be able to say, based on their personal direct awareness of walking in the woods, it wasn't me. They don't have an alibi. They don't have anyone to vouch for them. They don't have any evidence to present. Because of my direct experience, because of my awareness, because I, I was the one doing it, because I'm the one who encountered the woods, um, I'm justified in sticking to my guns, even if all this other evidence seems to be against me, and even if I can't even produce one argument. Plantinga uh, turns that into an argument for why someone might um, justifiably believe in God, uh, because, excuse me, in the absence of any ability to explain why anyone else should believe them, without the ability to marshal forward arguments and like. 
Um, something like perhaps the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, ex the direct experience of God. And in the absence of incredible uh, reasons to the contrary, it seems that that person might, if it's, if it's a good analogy, it seems that someone could reasonably and, and without you know, committing intellectual sin, believe in God without any reasons to be able to reasons uh, at all, without any arguments. And in fact, in the face of arguments that suggest that they're wrong. So um, scholars go back and forth on that argument from Plantinga and say, is that, is that compelling? Is it not? Uh, well, it certainly is compelling, given uh, how much writing has been done on it. But uh, is it persuasive? Uh, I, think, I think it certainly is very promising and gives a strong example of properly basic belief that is found, that, that whose foundation is not another belief, uh, but is direct experience itself. Foundationalism. The second side is coherentism. Coherentism says that uh, what are beliefs? So that, that, that it solves the problem of epistemic regress by going, I believe X, I believe A because I believe B, I believe B because I believe C, C because I believe D, D, E, da, 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 and I believe Z because I believe A. So it's a very, very large circle of beliefs that are self enforcing. Now, there are two problems with this. One is you notice that none of that ever touches reality. Um, just because a bunch of beliefs are self-enforcing and they're not mutually exclusive doesn't mean that they're right. There could be many sets of non-mutually exclusive and self-reinforcing beliefs, but none of them actually describe reality. For that reason, coherentism, um, well, um, well, let me skip that part for now. So, one of the, so, so one of the primary criticisms of coherentism is that it's anti-realist, means it doesn't, it's not trying to map onto an objective reality because it's just based in the world of belief and not a correspondence of belief with reality, which is truth, um, but also that it's viciously circular. I mean, if I believe A because I believe B because I believe C because I believe A because I believe B because I believe C, it's just a very large version of that. And so for that reason, um, I would say the majority of philosophy of epistemologists, but certainly not all, um, have steer have moved away from coherentism. Perhaps the most famous effort to blend the two, which I think I think she does a fairly good job, is Susan Hack. Susan Hack gives the analogy, and she gives a lot of mileage out of, of a crossword puzzle. She gives a crossword puzzle as an example of, uh, and, and imagine in your mind a crossword puzzle where some of the words are already filled in and some aren't. And she says, here's an example of where um, you could have beliefs represented by the words filled in, you know, knowing the answers about something over here um, that uh, justify other beliefs. That is to say the words that are not yet written in and, and they suggest what they could be because of how they intersect. She said, here's an example of how beliefs can justify other beliefs, but not be circular, okay? Because a crossword puzzle isn't circular. She says that this, you know, this word intersects this word, and you have this one filled in, and this one blank, and then this one connects over here. None of this is circular, but it is self-reinforcing. However, she's quick to acknowledge that in a crossword puzzle, you have clues, right? And she says, that's the direct experience. She says, so she makes up her own word called founterantism. <laughs> combining foundationalism and coherentism and saying, really, it's a combination of both. It's a combination of direct awareness and mutually enforcing beliefs that really makes up a strong um, justification. 
Nevertheless, it does seem that even just to get the first clue in Hack's example, you have to have something other than a belief, right? You have to have something other than belief unless uh, something has already started for you, and that's cheating in the, in the crossword puzzle example. So it does seem to me most likely and plausible that our justification bottoms out indirect awareness of things. But what are the foundational sources of our knowledge? I'm checking my notes over on this screen over here if you're wondering what I'm doing. What are the foundational sources of our knowledge or justification? It is generally agreed that there are five general categories of justification. The first, oh wow, they all came in together. I ruined the incredible surprise. Whoops. The first is sensory perception. So this would be all of my five senses. Um, uh, and, and that should be fairly obvious, it's the most common one, my, my visual sensations, I can smell certain things, I can taste certain things, I can hear certain things, etc, cetera, uh, etc. Cetera. And um, when I, when I when I see certain things, I instantly form a belief about those things. Uh, memory is another is another um, source of justification. In fact, memory is a necessary source of justification for us to get on in life at all. So if I have a perceptual uh, experience that I put uh, 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 my, my food in the oven and then I immediately forgot that, well, then not, not, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't have much justifying effect at all, would it? I have to have memory in order to retain those things and carry justification along with me that comes from all of the other sources of justification. So memory is certainly um, Memory is certainly an element of justification. Uh, then you have testimony. Oddly enough, when someone comes up and shakes your hand and says, hey, I'm John, you just find yourself instantly believing that person's John. Am I right? Testimony is how we know the vast majority of what we know about the world. Every time you turn on the weather channel, whether almost anything you know about science, advanced math, anything you know about someone's life you may not have met, any biography you've ever, I mean, we know, we believe so much on the basis of testimony. And it seems that in many cases, justifiably so. Reason. Um, so reason is going to be your ability to put things together. It's going to be your ability to deduce uh, certain things from from other things. And some people are very good at this and some people regrettably are not so good at this. Um, and then consciousness would be something like direct awareness, direct experience. Um, I can have knowledge of my, the inner workings of my own mind that you can't have. I have a privileged perspective on those things. Um, no one knows exactly what it's like to be Tyler. No one knows exactly what it's like to be uh, uh, whoever you know is watching uh, this. So you know, no one knows exactly what it's like to be you. So you have kind of this first-person privileged perspective on uh, on not on your own consciousness, your own direct um, awareness uh, of life in general. Those are generally considered to be the five foundational sources of justification. And it, and when you try to think of other sources of justification, you realize. that all of those sources are ascertained by these five, really, at the end of the day, okay? Um, including something like, again, what about the Bible? Well, the Bible I have to read, right? I'm using my sensory perception to read the Bible. I'm using reasoning to understand the sentences, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, this is a foundational 
uh, as it gets. And if you want the little blurb for why we're not just going to, you know, a passage of scripture to talk about justification uh, and knowledge, you can go back and watch the other um, the other class. So let me just talk briefly about how reliable are our foundational sources of knowledge. What about sense? Let's start off with sensory perception. Well, the answer is it. Like <laughs> I'm going to give away some. It depends. Is my sensory perception in a room that's clearly lit? Uh, in my visual perception in a room that's clearly lit, um, accurate? Uh, in the absence of me having some kind of problem with my eyes, yes, it is. Are there a variety of contexts in which that would not be accurate? Yes, there are. Uh, it's the same thing for memory. You ever forgotten something? Happened to me. Um, and so sometimes uh, we forget things. What about testimony? Have you ever believed something that someone said and it ended up not being true? The answer is yes, you have. And so certainly it is not an infallible source of knowledge unless, and the Christian does have a distinct advantage here because uh, even though they are using visual perception and, and reasoning to understand the words of scripture, once they understand those words, because of the doctrine of inerrancy, um, we, and, and the, the, the scripture gives an inerrant testimony to who God is, a very big deal. Reasoning. Have you ever reasoned about something and done so improperly, whether that was mathematically, logically, whatever? Probably so. And then consciousness. Now, this is uh, actually, let me back up and say, it may be that there are a few things that you can know infallibly, however, with regards to reason. It may be that certain mathematical and logical truths, it would be impossible to be mistaken about. Now, that doesn't leave us with knowing very much with certainty. Uh, but for example, it might you might argue, and it has been argued, that it's being, if I claim to know that two plus two equals four, it might be impossible just conceptually to understand how I could be mistaken about that, or the law of identity and logic, you know, P equals P, the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be both true and false in the same manner at the same time. Um, Self-evident truths like that, it, and those might be candidate for certainty uh, when we talk about reason. And then finally, consciousness, consciousness, my sense of awareness um, so there's a category of consciousness called incorrigible mental states that we might also have knowledge of infallibly, but it's really the knowledge of the contents of my own mind. Um, and, and so, for example, um, I know that I have a headache. Now, um, I might be wrong about the cause of that. Now, I don't really have a headache. I know that there was someone deeply, deeply distraught. They thought I had a headache here in my study, but I don't. I, I do appreciate that. But let's suppose I say I knew, uh, I know that I have a headache. Now, well, if someone looked at me uh, and said, and suppose I'm not lying, right? I mean, I truly believe I had a headache. Could I be wrong about that? It's hard to see how. I mean, I could be wrong about the cause of the headache. Um, I could be wrong about, man, I could be around, long, uh, wrong about a lot of things, but if I say something like, my head feels like it hurts, it's hard to see how I could be mistaken about that. Again, um, the jury is out on, on incorrigible mental states, but they're primarily how something feels to me or appears to me. Um, so, for example, I'm looking at an open door here, and, and certainly what would not be infallible would be that there is a door there, okay? Maybe maybe I'm hallucinating, but what is what does seem to be an infallible belief is that it seems to me there's a door there. It appears as though there's a door, 
even if there's no external world that exists, it still appears like there's a door. So in other words, these are the matters of, of conscience and it may uh, consciousness uh, that we may have certainty of. And it may be sometimes that we are making knowledge claims. What we are really doing is making those kinds of claims. It seems to me, it sure appears that this uh, kind of a claim. So perhaps more on that a little bit later. Okay, well, let's skip down. Let's continue on because justification is closely related to skepticism. So I want to try to walk through this. I want to land the plane. Hopefully, I, I unfortunately did not look at when I started, which is a rookie move here, but hopefully we can get through this. Um, and I wish I could throw out this question, what is skepticism? Because skepticism is kind of a family, more of a disposition and maybe a family of arguments as opposed to one particular thing. Uh, but first, let's get at the, the skeptical problem or problems. Uh, have you ever been wrong when you just knew you were right? You know, I was just certain this was the case. I'm positive, but you ended up being wrong. What if someone says, so insert any knowledge claim you have now. Well, how do you know you're not wrong this time? How do you know you're not wrong uh, on this particular occasion? Okay. That's how you might get one version of the skeptical problem, but it can arise on another front as well. Are there other explanations that can account for what you believe, even if you aren't aware of them? And if you can't rule those out, how can you claim knowledge of your explanation? Okay. Okay. So here are the facts and you're saying you believe this explains the facts, but this could also explain the facts. And Y and Z and A and F and G explanations could also all explain the facts, okay? So don't you think it's possible that your explanation is wrong and another explanation is right? If so, maybe you should just suspend belief, okay? Maybe we just can't know much of anything. And finally, which we're going to talk about later, is peer disagreement. What happens when people who are equally well-informed and equally smart and all the rest disagree? Well, I mean, if you see a dog run by a window and you say it's yellow and your friend whose eyes are just as good as you standing in the same place said it was, you know, dark brown, you know, and y'all were both standing there, you, you might reasonably conclude that, hey, maybe, maybe we don't know. Okay. In other words, that person's disagreement as a peer with you, a visual peer might cause you to adopt, you know, agnosticism. Like, well, I mean, I sure seemed to me it was, it was yellow, but he's saying it was brown and, you know, I don't have the corner on the market on visual acuity. I just, maybe I just, I just don't know. Should we adopt skepticism towards everything about which peers disagree? Couple versions of the skeptical problem. Um, one problem, problem related to skepticism and a famous problem in epistemology is the problem of the criterion. The problem of the criterion. Um, and this can be best demonstrated, in my opinion, historically by at least uh, looking at someone like Rene Descartes. And the two prominent schools here are Methodism and particularism. Uh, Rene Descartes is a great example of Methodism. So remember, he's trying to uh, start with, I'm constructing how I figure out what I know. And he started with, I think, therefore I am. He's like, oh, wait a second. If I'm a thinking thing, even if I'm being deceived by an evil demon or something, I still have to exist to be getting deceived. So he's like, look at that. I think, therefore I am. Then he actually ends up with an argument for God. Uh, uh, and he says, God is not a deceiver. Uh, he can, and he can know that with certainty. He can know that God exists with certainty because of the argument 
he can know that God isn't a deceiver. And so then he can he teases out his epistemology and how he knows things. So he starts with a method and then reasons to particular conclusions about what you know. Um, I, th I think probably the more common sense approach uh, is actually particularism. And that's and we've been assuming some of this as we talked about these things. And that is when we're trying to get at what counts as knowledge, we start with some paradigm examples, some obvious cases where if knowledge means anything, it means this. Uh, I believe that I'm currently holding a cup in my hand. Now, what about this scenario uh, in, you know, uh, makes this an instance of knowledge? You see, in this case, we're not starting with a method and going to what we know, we're starting with what we know and figure and kind of reverse engineering it, if that makes sense. Okay. But the problem is you have to start in one of these places and no matter how you start, no matter which place you start, someone on the other side could say, Hey, you're starting where I'm concluding. That's not fair. So more on that in a second, but you have to start somewhere, even with the method for establishing knowledge or clear cases of knowledge that you can develop an, an understanding of what knowledge is. I hope that makes sense. I know that might be a little bit confusing, but you got to start somewhere and the person on the other side is going to say, hey, you're starting where I'm supposed to be concluding. Okay. Um, so, the prop, so, so that's the problem of the criterion. Everyone has to address the problem of the criterion. Um, in the case of skepticism, what we're going to have to ask questions, uh, ask, ask, we're going to have to ask a couple questions. Uh, and one of them is going to be, how strong does justification have to be for knowledge? And we briefly addressed this last time when we said, um, is certainty required for knowledge? Now, I want you to be, want to be very clear on something. When I say certainty, I mean logical certainty, philosophical certainty. I mean not possibly wrong. I mean something like, even if this door doesn't exist in front of me, it appears to me that there's a door, that kind of not possibly wrong. Let's just say those incorrigible states are a good example, okay? Do, do I have to have certainty about everything I believe? And let me just say, I think if you have to have philosophical certainty, logical level of certainty, then we will end up having to confess that we know precious little about the world, okay? Precious little about the world. Um, most epistemologists agree, and they adopt, adopt a doctrine called fallibilism. Fallibilism. Fabulism says that knowledge claims, and this is going to be confusing at first, I'll explain, but knowledge claims can be possibly wrong so long as they're not actually wrong, okay? Another way to phrase that is, I can know something, and my justification for believing it doesn't guarantee that I'm right, but it is right. Okay. There's room for it to be wrong. It's not like a two plus two equals four justification where there's it logically my, my reasons for believing almost by default logically guarantee my conclusion is correct. Okay. But nevertheless, my conclusion is correct and I have good reason for it. Okay. I'm, I could be possibly wrong so long as I'm not actually wrong and still have knowledge. Or in other words, I could have knowledge without certainty. Okay. I can have knowledge without certainty because certainty isn't required for genuine knowledge. Now, 
um, you might have something like reasonable certainty. And I think that that's what most people mean in common dialogue. Uh, were you certain that you dropped your child off at school this morning? Yes, I was there dropping them off. I think that a lot of people uh, get very stressed out about this certainty bit. And instead, what we're really talking about is not this super, super uh, nuanced philosophical sense of certainty, not possibly logically wrong, but reasonable certainty. Hey, in the run of ordinary life, and we're not getting into the philosophy seminar room and talking about maybe the world being a dream or something like this, are you, and that, all of that is the back context for questions in the run of life, like, are you certain? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm reasonably, uh, may I'm reasonably certain, or I'm, I'm certain, and maybe you don't even have to say reasonably certain, but I think that that's what's going on in a lot of in a lot of occasions. And someone might be reasonably certain of something; they genuinely know something to be the case, truly. And yet they could say, "Yeah, and it's possible that I'm being deceived, and that my name isn't even what I think it is." But that's not case. I'm just making up silly examples. I'm making up silly examples that I have no reason, and neither do you, to think are true. And I don't go around believing things that I don't think I don't have any chance of being true. OK. Um, and so there is also, therefore, a difference between knowing something and knowing that I know something. And that's really what skepticism is after. It's an ask for certainty. Don't tell me that you know something. How do you know that you know? But the problem is you, there's no reason to believe that I have to know that I know something any more than um, I have to be able to explain how or why I explain something uh, and when I'm giving an explanation. So um, someone asks me, uh, you know, what broke the window? A rock hit it. Well, can you explain how the rock broke the window? Well, I might not be able to explain that at all. I mean, yeah, it hit the window when I broke it. I might not know anything about science. I might not know anything about how the dynamics of a rock breaking a window. It hit the window, it broke. That's the explanation. I don't have a further explanation, but I don't have to explain an explanation in that kind of context, okay? And there are some cases where you'd have to explain an explanation just to even make it reasonable. You couldn't give an explanation, say a pink unicorn fairy broke the window. You'd have to, you know, explain that, obviously. But in the course of regular explanations, we don't require explanations for um, explanations just indefinitely. And that's where it's very similar to this. The knowing that I know, why would I have to not know that I know that I know? To, why do I not need to know that I know that I know that I know? Well, the, the, the burden of proof just gets shifted at this point. It's like, what, why would anyone have to know that they know? Uh, that's not what I'm claiming. I'm claiming that I know this, not that I know that I know this. It's just silly. It's a word game. Uh, it, it's one of those gotcha moves that the skeptic makes. It's, could, it's pointed out that skeptics don't even know if they're trying to make these arguments about you can't know anything. How do they know that the premises of their own arguments are true? And that's a great point. The thing is, they don't have to know that they're true. The skeptic can say, well, for all I know, they're wrong, but you can't rule them out as being true. Okay, remember that second version of skepticism of how it can be introduced up there? Here's my skeptical explanation for what happened. Here's your re explanation for what happened. You seem to think yours is more reasonable, but I mean, you know, this could be the case too. Okay, how do you rule that out? And so let me, uh, oh, before, 
you also have, so how, how strong does justification have to be for knowledge? Fallibilism. It doesn't have to be certain. It might admit of degrees, and we'll go back to contextualism here. It might depend on what we're talking about. It might depend on the level of precision of the context we are in. Um, that may determine the level of justification or safety that I have to have in order to make a genuine knowledge claim. Okay. Let's talk finally, and I'm going to try to land the plane here, and I hope I'm in, I have enough, uh, I'm doing this in enough time. Let's talk about the Morian shift. This is a very, very, very important move in philosophy. G.E. Moore was a common sense philosopher responding to skeptical claims. Uh, he had had enough of it, and this is kind of an argument that he put forward. By the way, hard solipsism refers to the idea that nothing exists external to your own mind. Um, that you could just be a brain in a vat, uh, or you could just be a mind hallucinating everything. Um, and, and how do you figure that out? How could you prove that? Everything that you would go to prove that would seem to, uh, uh, you know, not be able to be explained by it. There's no way to get out of it, uh, so to speak, in order to do the explaining. So Moore is trying to respond to this version of skepticism, something like you're in the matrix, something like that. How do you know you're not in the matrix, that kind of thing. And here's what he does. This is a burden of proof shift. Okay, and this has a, uh, a, a very, this has been used a lot in philosophy and, and it's used a lot in theology as well. So he started off by saying this, uh, and notice he's, gonna, he's addressing skepticism, but the larger principle applies in other areas as well. Uh, he says, if skepticism's true, okay, then I don't know I have hands. That's what he says. If skepticism's true, I don't know I have hands. But then he says, I know I have hands. Here they are, right here. Therefore, skepticism is false, even if, here's the kicker. Oh, can I move this window? Even if I can't point out where it goes wrong. So let's say I look at a math problem, okay? It's, uh, uh, it's two even numbers multiplied by each other. And someone comes up uh, who, who has worked the problem out, and um, they have an answer, but it ends in an odd number. Well, I happen to know, I think, I mean, I'm almost certain that even numbers times even numbers multiplied by even numbers, excuse me, only result in even numbers, okay? And so suppose I tell this person, no, that's not the right answer. And they say, oh, yeah, well, show me where I went wrong. I might not be able to show them where, I went, where they went wrong but their conclusion is incompatible with something I know to be false. I'm more confident that two, um, two even numbers multiplied together equals in some even number than I am any of the work that he did. So even if I can't figure out what's wrong with his reasoning, his, his work, his argument, I, it seems like I can rationally reject it because it implies a conclusion I know to be false. G.E. Moore is saying the exact same thing to the skeptics, and he's just asking, hey, which one is a, is, a, is a more common sense? Which one do you think is more true? All of these silly little games about hallucinating the world aside. Notice in this syllogism here that both the skeptic and the realist uh, or the uh, kind of the common sense person accept the first premise. It is true that if skepticism is true, then I don't know. I have hands. And so in logic, you can either affirm the antecedent and then the consequent follows, okay? The antecedent is what comes after the if, but before the then. So skepticism is true. 
Um, or you can deny the consequent, which is the part that comes after then. And that means the antecedent is false, what comes before the then. Okay, I hope that didn't confuse anyone too badly. So you could do, you could make two logical moves from premise one. You could say, if skepticism is true, then I don't know I have hands. Um, premise two, skepticism is true. Therefore, I don't know I have hands. Or premise two could be, I know I have hands, which is denying the consequent of the first premise, and therefore skepticism is false. So um, if you can imagine a little slash there, G.E. Moore says, listen, which one do you think is, is, do you know? That the arguments, these very complicated, bizarre, hypothetical arguments for skepticism is true on one side, or do you think that you know you have hands? Come on now. That's what he says. Right in the grain of common sense philosophy. He says, listen, if you know you have hands, you can know skepticism is false, even if you don't know exactly what is wrong with it. Okay. And that is a very, very influential move in philosophy that also makes its way into the theology. Let me give you an example. I don't know what this scripture means, but I know it doesn't mean this because that would imply that fill in the blank. And I know that that's false. So even if I can't pinpoint what's wrong with your interpretation, I know it's wrong because it entails this. That is a Morian shift. I'm more, I'm, I have much more reason to believe that your conclusion is false than I have any reason to believe how you got there was reliable or true. And so I can reject that um, because I have good reason to, uh, at least in my opinion, reject the conclusion. Okay, even if I can't pinpoint what's wrong with your argument, I'm not in intellectual sin. Okay, I know that your conclusion is wrong because of these things over here. Um, and so I'm starting at a different place. And, and just because I can't pinpoint where you went wrong doesn't mean that I cannot rationally continue to hold my position. The Morian shift, very famous move, very famous response to skepticism, um, still does not, it doesn't even try to say what's wrong with the skeptic's argument. It just says, listen, there's just no reason to believe it. I mean, do you go about believing hypothetical realities all the time? Sure, we, we want uh, hypothetical, uh, excuse me, um, scenarios, not hypothetical realities. Hypothetical scenarios, you go about structuring your world like that. Is there any rational reason to positively believe this is true? Is there, are you going to carry any burden of proof or just throw out these wild ideas that I have no reason to think uh, is true. And then there are some other moves, excuse me, I've dropped my die twice here as I'm fiddling with it. I hope it's not too distracting. Um, there are a couple of other moves that do try to conclude. For example, one famous move is an inference to the best explanation. And what counts as a best explanation is up for uh, quite a bit of debate. But one element commonly thought to be an uh, element of good explanations is simplicity. And so um, what, what is the simpler explanation of me staring into this camera, that there's a camera there and I'm seeing it, or that there's um, a computer generating this complicated world to simulate me seeing it. And the and people who take this strategy say, obviously, the simpler explanation um, is the best explanation, and this and, and the reality explaining why I see a camera in front of me is therefore better than the hallucination hypothesis. Um, that's been subject to criticism. We don't have time to review that now, um, but perhaps we can return to that later. Well, we need to close our time. Thank you for, I know it's probably been awkward looking at me on a screen. I assure you it's not as been as awkward, uh, been as awkward for you as it has been for me staring into a camera, um, but hopefully we'll be able to come back and 
discuss peer disagreement before we close the segment and move into our study of the pastoral epistles. Uh, I love you guys, and um, I wish you the best there on Sunday morning. All right, I'm going to try to shut this thing down. <laughs>